morning, Lighthouse family. Would you stand as we proclaim today? The name of Jesus is higher than any other name. There's nothing, no chain, no name that is above him. Bless your name this morning, God, that your kingdom reigns. No matter what we see, we proclaim that your kingdom reigns and that there is power.
You can go ahead and grab a seat. And Jesus, we invite you to be front and center this morning. Holy Spirit, we invite you into this place to guide our conversation. Pray that you know what we carry in with us. You know intimately well the weight of the, the things that we are trying to hold up and the ways that uh, this world has just been grating against our soul. And so we entrust it into your hands as we come before you now. Pray that we could fix our eyes on you. Jesus, in your holy name, amen. Hey, good morning. It's good to see you all. We got to, um, there's some really fun stuff that's going on throughout the week. On Friday, our children's ministry uh, had a Nerf war, which was great because I didn't cause any kids to cry. Um, but it, it was, it's just so fun to see life returning to Lighthouse, to see 20 kids shooting one another in Jesus's name. Um, so for those of you, by the way, who helped, you used the little QR code to find out what the needs were and bought Nerf pellets or those things, they were put to really good use. And there were a lot of kids who came with friends on, on Friday night. And then on Saturday, we had our men's breakfast, which we try to do every couple of months. Uh, and it was just glorious to get to gather together across the street. But today, we are diving back into our uh, study through the Gospel of John. And I'm going to invite you guys to turn with me to John chapter 18. 
While you do that, let me really briefly remind you of where we've been so that for those of you who are kind of diving in here mid-conversation, you kind of have your bearing. And I'm not going to do it spoken word because I am not nearly as talented as Josh is in that, and it would just, it wouldn't work. So, Uh, Jesus has just finished having a meal with his disciples, and at that meal, he's kind of warned them, guys, I'm going away, but I want to let you know I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit who will do for you what I've been doing with you in leading and guiding and being a co-laborer with you and empowering you to radiate in the darkness. You guys are going to need to stay connected to me, and let me just remind you, it's not going to get easier persecution is coming. They persecuted me, they will persecute you. Just be aware that you, you, you will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. And then he prays for them in that moment. He prays for God's protection over them as they have to grapple with a world that stands in opposition to the message that they bring. And then he prays for us, for those who will come to faith through their message, that we would be unified as a declaration to the world that we are sons and daughters of God, that we're his disciples. And then after that, he says, guys, let's go. And and he leads them to the Garden of Gethsemane, this place where he gets down on his knees and he spends some time praying to the Father, preparing his heart for what's to come. And in the midst of that, a mob shows up with torches in the middle of the night. It's led by Judas Iscariot, one of his own disciples. And it's made up of Jewish priests as well as um, temple guards, and then Roman soldiers are mixed in there as well. And they have come to arrest Jesus. They've come to arrest him in the dead of night when there's not a whole bunch of prying eyes around. And then they take Jesus and they drag him to the high priest. But he's not the current sitting high priest. He is the former high priest. He's a a guy named Annas. And just to remind you of what Josh told us last week, but just to kind of put this into context, Rome was the one that determined who would be the high priest over the temple in Jerusalem, which is a very odd kind of mix of of power there. And they had deposed Annas as the high priest and installed his son-in-law Caiaphas. So Caiaphas is the sitting high priest, but that doesn't mean that Annas doesn't have power or influence in Jerusalem. If anything, it kind of increased his power, but more in the shadows. He became the godfather of Jerusalem. He was this mob don who stood in the background that was still holding a lot of power, a lot of influence. He just didn't necessarily have to stand in front of the Roman leaders and and answer for the Jews. And so, If they had dragged Jesus to Caiaphas, legally they could not have had a a proper trial in the dead of night because there couldn't have been witnesses around for that. But they're not interested in running a proper trial. Instead, they dragged Jesus to Annas, the, the, the godfather of Jerusalem. And Annas decides he is going to try to make a case against Jesus. They've already determined that Jesus is guilty. They just want the evidence that they can use so that when they finally bring him before Caiaphas, they can get a guilty plea. They can, they can give the reasons for why Jesus deserves to die. And so Annas begins to question Jesus. And if you've ever seen like a mafia movie where the, the protagonist, the good guy, is dragged into a darkened room, there's one light source, 
and he's kind of got this glaring in his face, and he's being questioned from the shadows by the mob boss. And any time he doesn't answer in the way that the mob boss wants, he gets punched in the stomach by the hired muscle. That's what's going on. You get a good idea of kind of how this played out. But Jesus, in the midst of that, didn't crumble, didn't give in. Annas is not able to get the evidence that he wants. And so as the sun begins to rise, he just kind of says, fine, forget it. And he sends Jesus under armed guard back to Caiaphas, where his official trial will take place. And, and John doesn't spend any time going into the trial with Caiaphas, but it is just as much a kangaroo court. It is just as much Jesus has already been determined guilty in their eyes. They're just looking for an excuse to give him the death penalty. But here's the problem. The Jews did not have the right to enact the death penalty for any reason other than somebody desecrating their temple. If somebody does that, they can stone them to death. But that's not what Jesus is being accused of. And so in order to silence Jesus, in order to kill him, they have to send him to a guy named Pilate. Pilate is the Roman representative. He is the power broker by Rome to keep the peace there in Jerusalem, but in all of Judea. And they have to send Jesus to Pilate in order for Pilate to sign off on, yes, this guy should die because you guys say he should die. And so that's why they do that. But I, I need to mention before we dive into this conversation, before we get to the passage we're going to look at this morning, that there is very little love between the Jewish leaders and, and Pilate. From the Jewish perspective, Pilate represents everything they hate. He is the representative of Roman rule. They hate him. He, they, he, he reminds them that they are not the kind of keepers of the, 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 the power structure there in Jerusalem, in their own home country. And so they hate him, but they have to work with him in order to get things done. Like their tenuous grasp on power is determined by whether or not he signs off on it. So they don't love Pilate, but Pilate doesn't love them either. Because he has, for a number of times, in his attempts to lead and keep the peace, he has run afoul of these Jewish leaders. He's stepped on their toes. He's done things they didn't approve of. And rather than going directly to him and saying, we don't like this, they went over his head. They demanded to see his manager, being Caesar, Tiberius Caesar. We want to talk to your manager. They complained to his manager, and Pilate got his hand slapped by Caesar. So he doesn't love them either. In fact, history tells us that he hated the Jewish leaders, but he's got to work with them because they represent, they speak to the Jewish populace. And so if you want to keep the peace, which is Pilate's job, and he wasn't necessarily great at it, but if you want to keep the peace, you got to make nice with this group of leaders because they have the ability to, and this is in, increasingly important right now when this story is taking place, because right now is the time of the Passover. And the population of Jerusalem has swelled from 20,000, that it is normally, to some 200,000 people. You got more than 10 times the amount of bodies stuffed into this little city. And Pilate knows, I don't, I, I don't want to make them upset now, because that could be devastating. And if anything happens here, that's going to be on my shoulders. 
And so this is kind of this tenuous relationship going on. They don't like one another, but they, they have to work together in order to keep the peace. And that's what's going, we're going to see as we go through this, that their respect for one another is very veiled, uh, and, and, and it's very raw. Uh, the, the last thing I will mention is that um, Pilate doesn't normally live there in Jerusalem. He lived in Caesarea, which is by the ocean, because, I mean, come on, let's be honest, if you can live by the ocean, you want to, right? So that's where he chose to typically live, but during the Passover, during one of these large festival times, since it's his responsibility to keep the peace, he had to live there in Jerusalem, and so he's living in the Fort Antonia, or the Antonia Fortress, which is this big building. Can we go ahead and throw that up on the screen? Here on the left side of the picture is the temple. And those, that outer space is kind of the temple courtyard area where people would gather. And then the Antonia Fortress is on the right side of the picture. It's this big fort that most of the, Jew, or the, the Roman guards would live in. And that became kind of the epicenter of Pilate's rule in Jerusalem. That's where he would rule from. And the reason that it was there is so that they could look over the walls into the Temple Mount and make sure there was nothing nefarious going on, making sure that rebellion wasn't being fomented there in, in, in the courtyard. So this is where they dragged Jesus to the front of the Antonia Fortress. Let's go ahead and start reading in chapter 18, verse 28. So the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas, who was the high priest, to the palace of the Roman governor, to the Antonia Fortress. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanliness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. The Jews believe, we're going to pause, I'm going to slowly work us through this. We may take a verse or two and then we'll kind of unpack it so that we understand what's going on. The Jews believed that Gentiles were unclean people. And to even eat, to eat with them or to even enter into their homes would make them ceremonially unclean because they're filthy animals, those Gentiles. I'm one of them. So, so they, they believe this and so they refuse to enter in. But here's the thing. You will not find that rule in any of the Mosaic law. If you opened your Bible and looked for the rule that says you cannot enter into the home of, of a Gentile, or you will be made ceremonial and clean, you won't find it. This was just one of the hundreds of extra rules and laws that were added on as almost like creating fences around the laws so that the people of God would never accidentally stumble into breaking a law. And this is one of the reasons why Jesus got so frustrated with the Jewish leaders because they so often misrepresented God's heart. Because they were intended to be a kingdom of priests, a, a people who radiated the, the values of God into this world that invited, ushered others to start worshiping God, but instead they began to look at themselves as more important than other people. And they began to isolate themselves from them. They began to look at Gentiles as unclean, filthy, unworthy, less than human people. And so Jesus would say things like, man, these, these guys honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their, their laws, are nothing more than just human tradition, like their rules made up by human beings. So Jesus was frustrated with them on a number of occasions, and this is part of the reason why he had so much conflict with the Jewish leaders. 
But the most ironic part of the fact that they refuse to go into Pilate's home for fear that it'll make them ceremonially unclean is that here they don't want to go in because they don't want it to tarnish them somehow so that they can't share in the Passover feast. And in that Passover feast, they would, they would eat a, a lamb that has been slain to remind them of the time when God redeemed his people out of slavery and passed over them. But in so doing, they're, they're there demanding the murder of the Lamb of God. I mean, these guys, their, their hearts have drifted so far from the heart of God that they would not recognize their Messiah if he was standing next to them, which ironically he is. And so in order to stay ceremonially unclean, they say, we're not going to enter in while at the same time demanding that Pilate murder their Messiah, even though they can't possibly see him as their Messiah in this moment. Do you see the irony of this whole thing? So the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor, and by now it was early morning. And so in order to avoid ceremonial uncleanliness, they didn't enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? Like, Pilate has better things to do during this Passover festival with 200,000 people stuffed into the city than to deal with a theological argument with these guys. They responded, if, this, if he were not a criminal, they replied, we wouldn't have handed him over to you. This doesn't sound like guys who really respect Pilate all that much, does it? They want him to rubber stamp. We've determined his guilt he deserves to die. We just want you to tell him that he can die, okay? That's all you need to do. Just say yes, and we'll move on, and we'll get out of your hair. Pilate's not willing to do that, though. Pilate says in verse 31, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. They, they respond, but we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. And all of this took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death that he was going to die. Because if the Jews had been given permission to kill Jesus, they would have thrown him down, they would have picked up stones, and they would have hurled him at him. But the Roman form of execution was to nail somebody to a cross, lift them up, and let them slowly suffocate under the weight of their own body as they hung there. And Jesus, time and again, has mentioned to his disciples, hey guys, I know that you're expecting one thing, but the, the Son of Man has to be lifted up so that the whole world can be restored, can be redeemed. And in fact, as far back as Isaiah 53, some 600 years prior to this ever happening, the prophet Isaiah said that the Son of Man or that the Messiah would be pierced for our transgressions. There's all of these, and next week we will look at many of these kind of foreshadowings of the way that Jesus, the Messiah, would die. All that to say this was not an accident. It wasn't like Jesus was being executed because he had somehow failed. This was always God's plan A. They just had no idea. So this took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Pilate then went back inside the palace and summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? I mean, this is a pointed question. If Jesus answers, yes, I am, that's case closed, end of story. He deserves to die because he is somehow a rival to Caesar, or at least he's positioning himself as a rival to Caesar, and anybody who did that deserves to die. 
But Jesus never, you'll notice as you go through the Gospels, Jesus rarely answers a question with a direct answer. He most often answers a question with another question. So he, he, he tries to tease out what's behind this for Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others tell you about me? Like, are you asking me, or is this because they told you that this is what I am? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied? Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. So what is it that you've done? What warrants me executing you? Jesus said to him, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest. But the Jewish leader, or my arrest by the Jewish leaders, but now my kingdom is from another place. In other words, I am not a king of a terrestrial kingdom that has borders that need to be guarded by soldiers. If that had been the case, then my own disciples would have fought for me. In fact, if, if Jesus' kingdom was a terrestrial kingdom, like he was trying to reestablish Israel as the preeminent nation on the planet, and he wanted to throw off Roman occupation, then he would never have reprimanded Peter for taking out his sword and cutting off the ear of Malchus, one of, the, one of the people coming to arrest Jesus. He never would have done that. Instead, he would have looked to his other disciples and said, guys, pull out your swords, pick up sticks, pick up stones, use your fists, fight for me. But he doesn't. He doesn't because for Jesus, the kingdom that he is coming to inaugurate is not a terrestrial kingdom with borders. It's not the nation of Israel against the rest of the world. The kingdom that Jesus was coming to inaugurate was the kingdom of heaven that transcends borders and begins to work throughout the entire world. It, it can be in the nation of America, but it is not synonymous with the nation of America. It can be in Israel, but it is not synonymous with Israel. And it is not limited to Israel, which is good news for most of us in this room because most of us are Gentiles by birth. So Jesus is saying... My kingdom's not of this world, but all Pilate hears is that Jesus is kind of affirming that he's a king. So he replies, so you're saying you're a king then, said Pilate. This is verse 37. And Jesus answered him, you say that I'm a king. In other words, that's your wording, not mine. But the fact is, the reason I was born and came into this world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. So, Pilate, you are using that language. It's not language I'm using. But I've come into this world as a light to shine in the darkness, to expose the brokenness and the misconceptions so that people can know the truth. And anyone on the side of truth listens to me. What kind of truth is he talking about? Well, he's talking about the ways that the Jewish leaders had misrepresented the heart of God had made it more about legalism than love, had, had, had tried to isolate themselves rather than being a kingdom of priests representing God to the other nations so that they could come and call him Lord as well. He came to shine light on the broken power structures of this world, power structures that suggested that people who held power like Pilate or Caesar above him were the arbiters of what is truth, when in reality, there's only one that truly is powerful, and his name is Yahweh, his father, God, not Pilate. 
come to shine light on the so-called pseudo-saviors that people have a tendency to reach toward that in the darkness look really attractive because they promise us life when in reality all they bring is death. They promise us freedom when in fact they end up putting us in chains. They promise us joy and give us nothing but sorrow. Jesus said, I have come to expose the emptiness of those pseudo-saviors so that you will recognize the only Savior that can actually truly save you. I have come to shine light in the darkness and reveal the truth. And anyone on the side of truth listens to me. Now, Pilate has a choice in this moment. Here he is standing before one who claims to be the source of truth. And he could lean in. I don't know, if I were in Pilate's sandals, I probably wouldn't have understood what Jesus was talking about. But he has a choice. He can lean in and go, what do you mean? Can you, can you expound on that? But he doesn't choose to do so. Because for Pilate, he's seen way too much of the world. He's seen the way that truth can be shaped by the ones who hold the power. And so for Pilate, he's grown really, really cynical. And he responds in a really cynical manner. He says, what's truth, said Pilate, and then he walks out of the room. What is truth? You know, for Pilate, truth was a joke. Truth was whatever the person holding the strings of power wanted it to be. That's truth, because if you, if you argue with the truth, then you will be punished. So you better shut up and go along to get along, if you will. And since he was the one who held the strings of power there in Jerusalem, for Pilate, he thought, I'm the one who determines the truth. And if we want to look at truth in the world at large, Caesar is the most powerful leader in the world. He's the one who determines truth. What is truth? Oh, you're going to tell me what truth is? I don't buy it. You? I'm holding power over you, Jesus. You claim to be a source of truth? Yeah, right. Pilate is cynical because he has seen the way that truth can be shaped and spun. But his question, his question could be like, he, he could be the poster child for the postmodern world, right? I mean, we live in a day and an age where that question, what is truth, is so utterly relevant because so many people are asking it. What is truth? In our day and in our age, we treat truth as if it is something that is simply relative to each person. We basically say there is no core absolute truth. Truth is relative to each person's perspective. So whatever you think and feel, that for you can be your truth so long as it doesn't impinge upon somebody else's truth for them. You can think what you want, just don't tell somebody else what they have to think unless you're the one holding the power, and then you, you, you have a little bit more right to tell other people what to think. And we have made truth relative, or we have treated truth as if it is relative. And into this conversation is Jesus, who claims to be the way, the truth, and the life, who claims to be the ultimate source of truth. Is it any wonder why in our postmodern world people look at the personhood of Jesus and treat him as worse than simply a false prophet or a false Messiah. Treat him as if he is evil in and of himself and you have to 
completely undermine and write off and treat as evil the name of Jesus because he would have the audacity to claim to be the ultimate source of truth. And so people have maligned his name. People have treated his name as evil. People have suggested that to to, to say the name of Jesus is to do evil against another person. People have treated, some of you in this room perhaps, as if he is just a crutch for you and made fun of you and written you off. And we can disregard the name of Jesus. We can write it off as as closed-minded, as if he's just a crutch, but we do so to our own peril because Jesus is presenting himself as the ultimate source of truth as the only one that can truly shine a light into our sin-darkened world and say, this is how God would have you to live. This is what it looks like to operate and to live as a child of God. We can disregard that to our own peril. And Pilate is standing next to the source of truth. And rather than leaning in, rather than asking more questions, and I love the fact that it's okay to ask questions. We're going to talk about that in a few weeks. It is okay to be confused. It is okay to not have all of the answers and yet still to lean in. But Pilate doesn't do that. Pilate's cynical. Pilate thinks he's the source of truth because he's the source of power. And so Pilate scoffs at Jesus' statement. (laughs) What is truth? And he stands up and he walks out of the room. Verse 38. What is truth? retorted Pilate. And with this, he went out again to the Jews gathered there, and he said, hey, I find no basis for a charge against him, but it's your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now, Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. I I leaned into that particular part of the story back in in Good Friday. There's so much beautiful, like, irony in that statement that we're not going to be able to mine today. But suffice it to say, it's ironic because all the things that they are accusing Jesus of being, a rebel who is fomenting rebellion, who is setting himself up as a rival to Caesar. That is what Barabbas is guilty of. And yet they say, we don't want Jesus, who's innocent. We want Barabbas, who we know is guilty, but we want him instead. Give us Barabbas. So Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged, had him beaten. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and they shoved it onto his head. And they clothed them with a purple robe. Now, purple was a really expensive dye. This was probably more like a deep maroon red, one of the soldier's cloaks. They probably put that over his shoulders, all to mock him, all to kind of play at, oh, we'll worship Jesus. Yeah, you're the king of the Jews, huh? You're nothing. And so they put this on his back, and then they went up to him again and again saying, hail, king of the Jews, and they would slap him in the face, and they were probably asking questions like, so who slapped you? Prophesy who did that to you. You're nothing. And once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, look, I'm going to bring him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. Pilate's hope is that by treating Jesus in this way, by mocking him, beating him up, putting the crown of thorns on his head, treating him as less than human, the people would take pity on him. What is evident to me is that Pilate has no desire to see Jesus executed, even though it wouldn't be hard for him 
He's, he's, he's executed countless other people. He has shown himself to be a brutal leader, but there's something about Jesus that causes him to pause. If you read Matthew's gospel, there's one little clue that might give us an idea of why Pilate was hesitant, and that is that his wife had already kind of sent word at some point in this interaction, had sent word to him. Can we throw that up there? It says, she said this to him, don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. We husbands disregard our wives' cautions at our own peril. And I think that part of it for Pilate is his wife has, has said, be cautious here. Another part of it is that Pilate recognizes that the accusations, the allegations that have been brought against Jesus are baseless. He's not setting himself up as a rival to Caesar. This is, this is ridiculous. And so twice now he said, I find no reason to execute this man. But he beats him up and he mocks him and he parades him out as some kind of joke king, hoping that it will cause them to soften their stance and, and to backtrack on their demands for him to kill him. So Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge with him. Verse 5, when Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, here is the man. Not like, here's the man. Here is this, here is this man that you guys have been making all this hubbub about. He's nobody. He's got blood coming down his face from the thorns. His face is beaten and bruised. Nothing about him that screams revolutionary hero. But it doesn't have the effect that he anticipates. Verse 6, as soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify. But Pilate answered, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. For the third time, he has declared Jesus' innocence. The Jewish leaders realize that their allegations against Jesus for being a revolutionary have, have not had the desired result. And so now they finally show their cards. They finally share with him the reason for why they think Jesus should be killed. Verse 7, the Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law. And according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. This is more theological than political. But this actually gets Pilate's attention because Pilate is a very superstitious man. He's Roman. And Romans didn't just believe in a god, they believed in a pantheon of gods. In their mythology, they had heard about gods siring children with human beings and those people like Hercules that would do incredible things. And so this gets Pilate's attention. And so once more, he, he brings Jesus back. Verse 8, when Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace, and he asked Jesus, where do you come from? Do you notice that the, the, the questions he's asking now are different? Now he wants to know, Jesus, who are you really? Where do you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Jesus doesn't try to argue for himself. Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said? Don't you realize I have the pow power either to free you or to crucify you? Don't you know that I hold your life in my hands and you're going to be silent now of all times? 
Jesus looked at them and answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. Jesus, the one who has come to shine light in the darkness and to reveal truth from the lies, looks right at Pilate, the one so-called power broker in Jerusalem to trump all other power brokers in Jerusalem. And he says, any power you think you have over me has been entrusted to you from the Father, from above. You're not nearly as powerful as you think you are, Pilate. In fact, you're not even powerful enough to keep me alive if the Father so desires for me to give my life. You can't even get me off. And in fact, that's exactly what we find happens. Because from that moment on, verse 12, from then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. He tried to set Jesus free, the most powerful person in all of Judea and in all of that city tried to set Jesus free. But the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, then you're no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the stone pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation for the Passover at around noon. They said, here's your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. And finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. There is a lot going on in this little passage that we've just read. There is a lot of power plays, a lot of dynamics going on, and, and we could spend probably several weeks unpacking it. I just want to take a few minutes and focus in on the three primary power players in this story. The first one is Pilate. Pilate, from the outset of the story, seems like the primary power broker, Seems like the one who is in control. He's the one who has to give the word whether or not Jesus should be crucified or not. Pilate views himself as the arbiter of truth there in Jerusalem because he's the one who holds the reins of power. And yet, as we go through the story, one of the things that just jumps off the page at me is that Pilate is shown to be more of a pawn than the power broker in Jerusalem. He doesn't have nearly the amount of power that he thinks he does. And as Jesus says in verse 11, any power you think you have has been given to you by one who is above you. And on one sense, we can think maybe he's talking about Caesar, but in reality, what we recognize is he's talking about his father. And what this reminds me of is that both Jesus and Paul in Romans chapter 13 point to those in positions of power in that day and in that age, but also in our own culture. It says the only reason they're there is because God has allowed them to be there. Even if they are not people who bend a knee to Jesus Christ, even if they are unbelievers, even if the choices that they make are odious to us, they're only there because God has allowed them to be there. And this is the most important point here. Just because they are in that position of power and just because it seems that they are winning 
and that they are pulling the strings and shaping our reality does not mean that God has lost control. God is still on the throne and he is still bringing about his purpose and his plans, not just in spite of them, but at times through them. God used this unbelieving Roman centurion, Roman general, I should say, to bring about his purpose and his plans, even though the general did not want to call for Jesus' execution. And I know that there are people in positions of, of authority in your life that you would not choose to have in that position, whether it be Ethan, your mom and your dad, or it might be your bosses making some really interesting decisions right now. It might be our governor. It might be a president. It might be other people in other positions of power. I recognize that throughout our life, we will come face to face with leaders that we would never choose regardless of which aisle you stand on right now. And I want to remind you that just because they find themselves there does not mean that Jesus is somehow losing, that the kingdom of God is somehow losing ground, that God has somehow lost control because he is working in and through things. Sometimes it looks different from what we would want. But God is still in control. Second thing, we have the Jewish leadership. There's a really, really sad moment in this story. Perhaps the most powerfully sad moment for me is not when Pilate says Jesus needs to be crucified because we recognize the gift that that was for us. We recognize that that was part of God's plan. Perhaps the saddest moment in this whole story happens in verse 15. When Pilate says, here's your king, and they shouted, take him away, take him away, and he goes, should I crucify your king? And listen to the words that the chief priests scream back. We have no king but Caesar. These are the, the leaders of the Jewish people screaming their allegiance to Caesar. Why? Because they wanted Jesus killed. And this was the most expedient way to make it happen. They are willing to compromise their faith and call Caesar king when in reality they only have one king and his name is Yahweh. They're willing to compromise because for them, the end justifies the means. And I wonder how many times we act like them. I wonder how many times we look at the power struggles going on in our own society, in our own world, and we make decisions very similar to them. I wonder how often we compromise our own convictions and begin to elevate human beings into a position in our own mind that only God has the right to occupy. And I'm going to step on some toes right now, and I apologize, but not really. Because sometimes we need to have our toes stepped on, our toes stepped on just a little bit. Guys, I have been very discouraged over the last several years as I've watched many of my very mature brothers and sisters in Christ take their eyes off of the Father and put them onto politicians and political parties and say, that is where my hope comes from. 
as if a political party represents the heart of God. As if a flawed human being is our savior, there is not a single politician or non-politician on this planet that will ever step into that role. And when we begin to think that in any given election, whether it's a referendum on our governor or whether it's a, a, a presidential election, when we begin to buy into the belief that somehow the kingdom of God is on the ballot, and so we have to fight to the bloody death over it, and we need to part company with family members and neighbors over that, because somehow whoever is sitting in, whether or not God is winning will be determined by who is sitting in the Oval Office, may I simply remind you that far too often as you look at the history of humanity, as you look at the history of the church, far too often the moments in history that we are most embarrassed about, where we have misrepresented the heart of God the most, have been in those seasons where we somehow got our hands on power and tried to legislate morality. As if you can legislate morality. As if you can force people to live and act a certain way. If Jesus thought he could do that, then he probably would have commended Peter for picking up the sword and called the rest of his disciples to fight for him. He probably would have tried to position himself as the king of Israel and change the world from a political standpoint, but he did not choose to do that because his kingdom is not of this world. And some of us need to repent of the ways that we have enmeshed our faith in God with our faith in a political party or a politician or with the power structures of our democratic society. When we compromise, it may pay dividends momentarily, but it ends up having very, very negative ramifications later on. Let me just give you an example. Annas and Caiaphas saw Jesus as a threat to the status quo for the Jews. Caiaphas even said it is better for one man to die than for all of Israel to die. Kind of prophesying what Jesus was going to do. But in this moment, their compromise is Caesar is Lord. Caesar is our king. We have no king but Caesar. Crucify him. And they got Jesus killed in that moment. They thought they won. Forty years later, however, the one that they called king, the Caesar, changed his mind. And he ordered the destruction of the temple in, in Jerusalem and the slaughtering of Jews. And some one and a half million Jews lost their life because Caesar, their king, commanded it. I look at the compromises that we have made as as the church. Remember, church isn't a building. We're the church. I look at some of the compromises we have made in anointing a, a, a politician or a political party as the representative of God's heart. And yes, I know that some politicians reflect better than others for us, but when we begin to hitch the wagon of our faith to a political party, 
that might have expedience in the moment, but it, it has consequences. And I don't think that we recognize the consequences that our willingness to allow our faith in Jesus to become enmeshed with our faith in a politician or a political party. I don't think we even realize the damage it has done to the gospel. Because we live in a time right now where less and less people are ever willing to step foot into the church. Less and less people are reaching out for Jesus. And I would say that at least in part that is because of the battles we have chosen to fight and the compromises we have chosen to make. That's all I'm going to say on that. And regardless of which side of the aisle we are on, we are culpable of this. I'm not talking to one side over the other. And then, in the midst of all of this, and I'm sorry if you got some bruised toes right now. Not really. And into this, you have Jesus, who at the beginning of this passage we've been looking at today, looks like the pawn. Looks like he is completely and utterly powerless. He is chained and dragged before Annas, Dragged before Caiaphas, dragged before Pilate. Other people have his life supposedly in their hands. And yet, of all of the people we've looked at, only Jesus seems to have his feet firmly planted on the ground. Only Jesus seems to be unwavering in his confidence. And it doesn't matter what people do. They can hurl insults. They can accuse him of awful things. They can call his character into question. They can beat him. They can mock him. They can ultimately take his life. But they cannot get him to shift his focus off of the Father and onto them. They cannot get him to shift his focus off of the Father and off of the Father's will in order to try to maintain his own safety. When we are scared, when fear is the thing that controls us, we are often willing to do some very, things that are very much out of character for us. I think some of us have been doing some things that are pretty out of character for us, out of fear. Jesus is not afraid, even though we know that he didn't want to suffer and die. This isn't something that he wants to happen, but he is willing to suffer and die for us as an act of worship to his Father. Jesus models for us what we are called to do. In fact, the writer of Hebrews, and this is how I'm going to close. I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward. The writer of Hebrews, ah, let's just put it up here, says this. Let us run with perseverance the race marked for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he ultimately sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Keep going. And then this is ultimately where the writer of Hebrews lands. He writes, Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners and so-called power brokers, so that you will not grow weary or lose heart. Jesus modeled for us the posture we are to take in the midst of a world that is at war, 
in the midst of a world that is fracturing around us, in the midst of a world that we, many of us, don't even recognize from just a few years ago. Don't fixate on the circumstances. Don't fixate on the momentary fight for power. Do not compromise. Keep your eyes fixed on God. Keep your eyes fixed on me. Follow me. Trust me. Because here's what Jesus knew. Regardless of how bad it gets and regardless of how much they try to to break him down and treat him as less than human, at the end of the day, God wins. God is and will forever be on the throne. God is in far greater control than we realize. Now, there are There is evil in this world and there is an enemy that is working overtime to take our eyes off of God. An enemy that is working overtime to sow discord and hatred and anger. We have an enemy and he is working overtime right now. But our God is bigger than him. Our dad is bigger than that schoolyard bully. And rather than getting caught up in the fight and picking sides... And, t- and doing the enemy's work of tearing one another down, may we be the kind of people who keep our eyes fixed on the author and perfecter of our faith. He suffered because he knew that no matter what happened, God gets the last word. And God even used his suffering for our good. So may we be people who don't shy away from suffering. May we be people who don't shy away from the messiness God bless you. And yes, please continue to vote. And yes, please continue to prayerfully consider what does it look like to reflect my Father's heart. But may we be the kind of people who find our hope in God and not in any politician, not in any political party, and not in any pack. Because we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven before we are ever citizens of the kingdoms of this earth. And right now as we go into a time of response, you may just want to spend some time refocusing your eyes off of your circumstances and onto the one who stands above your circumstances. You may just want to kind of open your palms and, and consider in them as, as we're worshiping. You may just want to hold your palms open and kind of imagine what are the things right now that I have been carrying, the weight that I have been carrying. For me, my kids are in my palms. I have been carrying the, the fear for them. And for me, this church community is in my palms. These are the things that, but what are the things that you've been carrying around? And I want to invite you, just for a moment, to consider what those things are and then to offer them back up to God. Not because they don't matter, but because of how much they matter. Offer them back up to him and say, Father God, I trust you with these things Your will be done. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. And we are scared. We trust you and we often get so distracted by our circumstances that we take our eyes off of you. So Father God, we ask you right now, we we remind ourselves that you stand above our circumstances. Jesus, We want to follow your example. And Holy Spirit, we invite you 
to search us and know us and to expose anything in our hearts, any vestige of, of compromise, any area that we have been resisting your lordship in our lives. And we submit it into your hands and pray that you would use us in spite of our imperfections to reflect your heart into this sin-darkened world, that we would be reflections of truth as well. Jesus, in your name, amen. During this time, you might just want to sit there and, and spend some time having a conversation with God, or you might want to pray, or I'm going to invite our elder couples and Jeff uh, to be at the back in case you just need prayer. Maybe you want somebody to help carry this with you a little bit. We're going to be at the back to pray with you. But let's go ahead and respond now. Yeah.
Cause they say this mountain can't be moved They say these chains will never break But they don't know you like we do There is power in your name We've heard that there is no way Yeah. 
don't have to sit down, Gary. Come on. You stand with me. Hey, guys, um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to kind of do this right now with my world, and I'm going to invite you, if you choose, to join me. It's kind of opening your palms and considering all that God has entrusted to your care. The things that you have some control over, and, and, and honestly, the things that matter greatly to you, but you have very little control over. And my prayer, the reminder for me this morning, is that it seems as if there's a lot of petty power brokers that have a lot of say in this, but at the end of the day, what I am reminded of is that my Father God is on the throne. And I'm going to entrust these things to him. So if you would join me in praying, Father God, help yourself to our lives. Father God, we need to be reminded that you are the one who truly is in power. You are the one who is working behind the scenes to redeem humanity, not just people who already get it, but men and women who right now stand in the shadows and are so utterly convinced that they're right, that they're not looking for truth. They've got the truth. They're comfortable in the truth. So they don't want any other truth that could somehow impinge upon it. And Father God, we pray that you would radiate light into the darkness, not just theirs, but our darkness, the ways that we have arrogantly kind of concluded that we don't have anything else to learn. May we be the first who are teachable. May we be the first who lay down our idols. May we be the first who let go of our own sense of control or our own need to be in control and, in tr and, and hand it to you and say, Father God, help yourself to our lives. I pray that you would fill us up so completely with your presence that as we walk out of here today, we reflect that hope. That it's not the fear of the world that we are reflecting. It's not our anger towards people who disagree with us that we're reflecting, but it's our hope in you that we are reflecting so that others who could use a lot of hope right now might be drawn to you you're the only one who can save. You're the only one who could take the messiness of this sin-warped world and use it to redeem and restore. So help yourself to our lives, Jesus, in your holy name. Amen. Guys, if there's prayer requests, write them on the connection cards and drop them in the back. If you want, if you have a financial offering, you can drop them in the boxes in the back. I love getting to do life with you. And if I stepped on your toes, let me know so that I can do it some more. Or you can do it to me. Whatever. I love you. Have a wonderful week.